All right, so here, here's what I want to do. Um, I just want to remind you once again that the Bible gives us what we need to know, not necessarily what we want to know. There are some things that the Scriptures are very specific about, and then there are some things that I like to call there are gray areas, and these are the things that require faith. These are the things that if you really want to find out the answer to them, you got to go to heaven to find out, okay? But in the meantime, though, Scripture does give us a lot of information about what our heavenly home is going to be like. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to talk about some of these questions that you have been asking, and we're going to try and answer them. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. And uh, believe it or not, I brought my King James Bible with me. Any of you own a King James Bible? All right, some of you do, okay? I didn't do it by accident because I'm going to use it in a little bit. But um, I want to just kind of share with you what some of these questions are. And here's the first question that, that people have been asking is this is one of those that everybody wants to know, and that is this. Will we know our loved ones in heaven? Okay? How many of you would like to know the answer to that question? You know what? The Bible gives us some answers about that. And so what I want to do before I bring these guys in is I want to begin with a scripture verse in 1 John 3, verse 2, okay? 1 John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are our children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So one of the things that I just want to start off by saying is this. We know that our bodies are temporal. Praise the Lord, right? But our spirits are eternal. And the one thing that, that I like to do, and, and just a couple of weeks ago I was able to do a funeral for a, a, a seven-year-old little girl, and I did a children's message, and in there I gave the example of a seed, a seed has to be planted, it has to be buried, it has to die in order for vegetation to come forth, correct? We're all clear on that, right? We also know that if I plant a watermelon seed, you know what, I'm going to get a watermelon. We also know that if I plant an orange seed, I'm going to get an orange tree, right? The Bible is pretty clear for us about the fact that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But here's what I want you to remember about this illustration that I think is so important, and you may want to write this down. It's this. What is raised, the harvest, is always superior to that which is planted. I want to say that again. That which is raised is always superior to what is planted. Here's the case in point. When Jesus died, the Bible tells us he was true man and he was true God. When he died and he was buried and he was raised to new life, you know what? His body was different. It was superior to the body that he enjoyed while he was here on earth. And here's what I want you to know. When the Lord calls you home, or the Lord has, who has called your loved ones home, I want you to know that we are buried, we are planted, we die, but what is raised 
is superior to what was planted. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd I'd say amen to that, wouldn't you? You know, it's interesting that when Jesus was on the earth, when he walked out of the grave, you remember that he ate, he drank, he told the disciples, touch my hands, touch my feet, put your hand in my side. And even in those places where Jesus was not recognized, it was only temporary, right? It may have been because it was dark out. It may have been because they were looking at him through the tears. But what did they recognize about him? They recognized his characteristics. Remember, they saw how he broke the bread. They recognized his voice when he called out Mary. That tells us a lot about what it is that we can expect from our bodies. The thing that I'm really excited about is this. Jesus was not constrained in his body by materials. He could pass through walls and doors, and he could travel like that. Now, you think I'm fast now? Imagine we will be able to do the very same things. And so I want to ask our panel here about some of these quest- of this question is, and I want to hear from some of them as what they would have to say about the fact about that Jesus, that will, will we recognize our loved ones? So I'm just going to kind of open it up and who wants to jump in? They're all looking at each other like, do you want me to call on somebody? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. All right. I, I think about when Jesus was, you know, came and he appeared with the disciples. It was so relational, right? And so Jesus and God has created us to be so relational that when we're thinking about being in heaven, uh, it, it makes so much sense that we would recognize our loved ones because of those relationships carrying on. I mean, we start them here and, and we carry them on into, into heaven. And I think about even in 2 Samuel when, when David loses his son and he says his son can't come back to him, but he can go to his son. And, you know, I, I believe he was talking about heaven in general, but I also think that David truly believed he would see his son again in heaven. And in order to see him, he would have to recognize him. And so I, I think about those relationship components that God has created in us and how they're God honoring. And I would just think that that would continue on into the next life. It is hard to imagine a God who knows every one of us throughout history in an individual, personal way. That's just unbelievable, really, when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem that if it delights him to have created us that way, we we could have all looked like Bob, Pastor Bob. (laughs) There's the response. Um, God, God decided for his own delight to make every single one of us in a very detailed, specific way, which as you've already said, that means he knows each and every one of you in a very specific way. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. That's right. And so it's, it's interesting to know that um, we will continue on with our own characteristics that we have in our bodies here, our memories, our personalities. Um, in heaven, I will be Bob Beckler. You will be Dr. Bob Ingram. You will be Justin. You will be Pete. Um, what's neat, though, is that we w- I will be the perfect Bob Beckler. 
And you know what? My wife said to me, she goes, I don't even know if that's possible, but you know what? God can work miracles. God can work miracles, that's right. I want to go with one other verse that I think is really important that I want you guys to write down. And this is where the scripture speaks about something specific about this question. Look at what it says here. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the end, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. I want you to look at that word firstborn, okay? That firstborn in the Greek is we get our word prototype. When a car industry makes a car, they have a prototype. And from that car, they make all of the other cars. Are you with me? The Bible is telling us right here, Jesus is that prototype for you and I. You know what that means? We will be like him. And I don't know about you, but that just, that really excites me, is that as Jesus walked on this earth in this resurrected body, that they recognized him. We know that on the mountain of transfiguration, remember the disciples recognized Elijah and they recognized Moses, right? I think also one of the questions that kind of came along with this one that I thought was interesting is, is that, okay, so if I recognize my loved ones, what age will they be? Man, that's a pretty specific question. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. However, the Jewish history speaks to that. And the Jewish history believes that man, his ministry, his time of perfection in life comes at age 30. Jesus started his ministry at what? Age 30, right? King David started his kingship at age 30. And so what a lot of people think is, well, we'll all be around the age of 30. I don't know for sure. All I know is that I want to get to home to that new body that God has for me, and I want to spend time with my loved ones. So I think that answers that question for you, that will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? And the answer is most definitely, according to the scriptures, yes. All right, let's go to another one. This is a big question, okay? And um, I'm not going to answer this question. I'm going to let these guys answer this question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I want to just, I just want to start this off, and then I'm going to kind of turn it over to them. Um, I think there's two questions here, and the first one is a pretty easy question, and that question is this, will there be animals in heaven? And the Bible's pretty specific about that. In Isaiah 11, look what it says. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child shall lead them. So if you're asking me, will there be animals in heaven? The answer is most definitely yes. Now the question that people want to know is, will my pets be in heaven? I want to share with you just something that a, a pastor wrote. He said, he said, so the Bible tells us that Jesus will come back in Revelation riding a what? White horse. Here's what he said. If there's a white horse in heaven, why not my dog Tex? So, Listen to what the great reformer Martin Luther said. In paradise, there is complete harmony between man and animals. One day again, 
the har that harmony will be restored and all creation will be made anew. I want to say one last thing about this. We know that animals are purely physical. They do not have a soul, okay? And so when they die, scholars would agree that they cease to exist, okay? All right, now, we're going to go a little bit farther than that, and I'm just going to kind of open it up to these scholars here and let you begin to share. Dr. Bob, would you like to share with us on that? Uh, I will just say that theologian Rebecca Ingram changed my heart through decades of taking the hard stance that dogs don't have souls. And we're not talking about cats because that, that's a whole different, <laughs> that's a whole different animal. But the main point is that uh, why would God who has given us and blessed us with the beauty of, of, of animals and, and trees and mountains and oceans and all that delights our eyes, why would God withhold from us something that loves as unconditionally as a dog. You walk home, no matter what your day has been like, your dog thinks that you're perfect, Pastor Bob, that you've reached perfection already. Why would God withhold that, amen? But not cats. <laughs> cats own you. That's a whole different question and answer. That's, that's my scholarly response. All right. Very good. He's the doctor. <laughs> uh, so. you're, not, no. you're, you're not touching that one at all, huh? No, I, I think about Second Corinthians when it talks about no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those that love them. And, and so I, I would take a little bit different of approach just from the standpoint that um, heaven is going to be so much more amazing than any of us could ever imagine. And I think sometimes we, because we can't truly understand and fathom what it's going to be like, we try to kind of paint heaven into a picture or fill it with the things that we want to now, trying to understand it. But really, God is going to be so much greater than we can even imagine. So heaven is going to be incredible. And, and so if our pets are there, great. If our pets aren't there, it's going to be okay. God, God is so much greater than we can understand. And so um, we won't be missing a companion or needing comfort uh, from an animal because we'll have that in Christ in heaven. And so it'll be so much more amazing than any of us can imagine. Okay. All right, I want you to write down this scripture verse here, okay? It's Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, okay? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, to the redemption of our bodies. So I think that this statement here is a pretty clear statement that at our resurrection, the redemption of our bodies, okay, that not only man will be restored. The Bible tells us that creation that has been groaning since sin entered into the world will also be restored. So here's what I want you to know. 
I have some grandsons that love dinosaurs. Do I believe that there will be dinosaurs in heaven? You better believe I do. Psalm 104, write that down. Psalm 104 explains the purpose of animals and vegetation on the earth and what their purpose is. And you know what their purpose is? To bring glory to God. So, all I'm simply going to say this. Please hear me. I am not talking about or saying that I believe in the resurrection of animals. I'm not saying that at all, okay? What I am saying is this. It's pretty obvious that God is going to recreate some animals on a new heaven and a new earth. And you know what? Maybe because he loves you so much, this is the gospel according to Bob, not the gospel according to God. Maybe because he loves you so much, he may do exactly that and recreate that pet that has been a part of your life so that you can enjoy that companionship. Does that help? All right. Okay. Let's go on to the next question. Will we be aware of those who are not present in heaven? You could start. <laughs> All right. So this is one of those areas that can be a little bit gray, but I think the Scripture does have some things to say about this, and I want to begin with one of those, okay? Luke 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then in verse 10 in that same chapter, it says this, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, I want to just point out something there. Did you hear what that scripture verse just said? In the presence of angels, there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. I want to go to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in Hades, okay? He was in torment, and Lazarus and um, Abraham were in the presence or in what we would refer to as a part of heaven, okay? The rich man in Hades cried out to Abraham, right? He complained to him. What did he want? He said, I want a drop of water. Are we all on the same page about that? Was not Lazarus in the presence of Abraham? You see where I'm going with this? If in the presence of the angels there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents, why wouldn't in the presence of Abraham where a conversation is going on, why wouldn't Lazarus be aware of the conversation between Abraham and the rich man who was in torment. I think it's also very interesting that we need to understand this in Isaiah 66, verse 17, because sometimes this is misquoted. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Okay, some people will use this passage to say, you know what, it means that we're going to forget everything. No, that's not what it means. 
in this scripture, in this group of verses there, it's talking about the new heaven and the new earth, and what it is focusing on is that what will be missing will be suffering and pain. You will not have the recollection of the suffering and of the pain that you went through while you were here on earth. But I also think it's important for us to understand that our personalities will not be tainted by sin. Does that make sense? In other words, I will love in a way like I've never loved before because there will be no sin in my life that taints that love. I will be totally about other people and not about myself. And so you remember that the rich man who cries out to Lazarus He knows his brothers are not in hell. How do we know that? Because he says, send someone to my brothers so that they will not end up where I am. All of this is in the presence of Abraham. Now listen, the rich man who was a Jew and a descendant of Abraham. And so... My thinking on that, if you were to ask me, Pastor Bob, do you believe that you will know that your loved ones are not there? My personal response would be yes. But I also believe that my love will be completely different than what I enjoy right now. I will know they're not there, but I will be so engulfed in the love of my Lord and my Savior Jesus Christ because perfect love understands this, justice, righteousness, and a holy God. Anybody want to add to that? I don't completely understand Isaiah 66. I don't know that anyone does, but it is definitely a a projection of the end times. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of a morbid verse. You know, we read 6517, which we need to remember when I read (laughs) Isaiah 66, verse 22 to 24, which says, they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. I don't completely understand what that means, but I do, I do believe scripture supports a, a, a time of accountability and judgment of individuals, churches, uh, nations, leaders. I believe there's evidence for that. I don't know that that's I believe that's a slice, a slice of our ultimate eternal experience. But I do believe there's going to be an accountability even for believers. I believe that churches, uh, churches will come under a time of accountability. Nations, um, all according to the truth of Scripture. Um, however, I don't believe that's our ultimate experience. Bob uh, shared um, the, the love that we will be filled with and our natures will be so different than our current nature um, you know, the, the fragileness of our emotions and the sadness. We know that Scripture says that that will be gone uh, ultimately as we experience heaven. But I do believe there's that time of accountability, which we ought to take seriously as we live these few days left that we have. Very good. I think it's hard because living on earth, it's tough to imagine a heaven without the pain and the sorrow, <clears throat> excuse me, and the hurt. And so when we think about knowing someone that's not there, that's what we go to. We think about the pain and the hurt we would experience now. But I think about in, you know, Revelation 21.4 when it talks about in the new heavens that God will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death and pain and sorrow. And so 
somehow, some way. We switch from that earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. And, and even knowing that they're not there, there is no pain. There is no sorrow. Somehow, some way, in God's goodness and, and his glory, we will have a different perspective. And so we'll probably be aware, but it'll be a whole different feeling than what it brings to you emotionally right now through this perspective. Very good. All right, let's go on. Um, this was one that um, we had talked about in, in a message a while back, explained the three heavens and the Sheol, Hades versus heaven. Um, we had talked about, remember that in the Old Testament, that the afterlife or where departed spirits went was called Sheol. Sheol was the Old Testament term for that. In the New Testament, when they translated it to the Greek, it became Hades. We know that both the righteous and the unrighteous went to this place, but they had two different experiences, the Bible tells us. I think the thing that is important then, and I think I forgot to say this in our second service, and that was is that at the resurrection, sometime between that time and Jesus when he ascended into heaven, he took all of those who were in Hades with him into heaven. And that's why when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, okay? Um, the other thing was is we, we, there was a little, um, not pushback, but people had questions about, okay, you said that there's a, third, there's a third heaven. I never knew that there were three heavens. And what I will say to you is that, you know, in 2 Corinthians, the Bible tells us that the apostle was taken to the third heaven, okay? So part of me thinks, well, if there's a third heaven, there must be a first and a second heaven, right? And so maybe another word that we could use for that would be levels. And so if you wanna know about the first and the second hevel, level, um, that's why I brought my King James with me because they're recorded for us in the scriptures and the first one is recorded in John chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter one, verse 20. This is where he talks about the first heaven. It says, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth, now here it is, in the open firmament of heaven, okay? So that word firmament means what we can see with the physical eye. So that's the level of heaven that we would look at here on earth and in the atmosphere of the earth. The second level or the second heaven is recorded in Genesis chapter one and that's in verses 14 and 15. And it says this, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, okay? to divide the day from the night and let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years. Once again, that firmament means what you can see with the physical eye. That would be outer space, all of those lights up there. The third heaven or that third level is where Jesus is, where, where the Lord dwells, um, and that's the place that we would ascribe to as paradise, okay? All right, now. We have one more question that we're going to uh, deal with because, man, it's already 10.01, and time flies when you're having fun, right? I hope that you will spend time in the Scriptures and really seek this out. Um, 
you know, the Bereans, what did they do? They listened to Paul, and then they went to the Bible, what? To make sure that what he was saying matched up with what the Scripture said. And that's what I want you to do. And then pray, God, show me what it is, is that you want me to learn from this. The next question that I want to talk about, and that's why I've invited Pete Oaks to come and join us, is why am I a Christian? And you know what? The Bible says that we all need to have an answer to this question. Pete and I were traveling um, a while back, and, and Pete, you teach a class at Kansas University periodically, and it's a, it's a business class, right? And so there's, there's all different kinds of kids from all different backgrounds, and obviously a lot of them are not believers. I think you told me that one of the things a professor said, because she knows you're a believer, be careful when you tread that ground, right? But that's part of who you are, right? That you are a, a Christian. So um, you get that question almost every time. And, and I want you to listen to this because this is an incredible answer. When someone from, whether it's an alternate lifestyle or whatever, when they ask you that question, tell us about that, how you go about that. Sure. So uh, the real reason I'm a Christian is because of the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And I want to make sure you absolutely understand that. But I do think as we engage the world of non-Christians, I think we need to be, have a winsome winning. We need to understand why we are Christians, and we need a way to hopefully pick their interest in what's going on. So there are three reasons. Uh, when I get the question from a non-believer, uh, this, this is what I tell them. There are three reasons I'm a Christian. The first reason is I believe it's mathematically impossible for the world to exist without God. Let me explain. Uh, as you may know, over the last 20 years, ha they have decoded or they have sequenced the human genome. That is, the, the, this is a strand of DNA molecules that make you, you. And that's made up of three billion, with a B, three billion pairs of proteins that are perfectly aligned. If two of those are not in the same order that they should be in, you aren't you. So let me explain the probability of that happening. Uh, there's a mathematical computation that if I said these were the, let's say you were made up of five pairs of proteins instead of three billion. How many, what's the probability of those five being perfectly sequenced to make you you? There's a mathematical computation called the permutation. It's five times four times three times two times one. That's 120 different probabilities or possibilities for these to be lined up perfectly. Let's take those five pairs of proteins, put them in a jar, shake them up, stretch them out on a table. For them to be perfectly you, it's, there's 120 options to do that. Let's say instead of five, it's 10. We now have 10 options. That 120 jumps to 3.5 million. So let's start with 3 billion and do the permutation. It's a number that does not exist. I don't think it exists. It's, it's in the, the, and then you take that times 260,000 beetles, times 30,000 different orchids. This place will not exist mathematically. I don't leave without God. It takes a, a designer. The second reason I believe in God is I'm not going to take the risk of being a non-Christian. If, if I'm a Christian and you are not a Christian, let's just go through this. 
If I'm a Christian and I'm wrong, what happens? Nothing. The downside for me of being a, a, a Christian and me being wrong is nothing. I wind up dead and life ends. If I am right, what happens? I get heaven. If you are a non-Christian and you are right, what do you get? Nothing. If you are wrong, it's an eternal catastrophe. I am not willing to take that risk. The third reason I'm a Christian is it works. If you've got two or three hours, come sit down with me. I will tell you about my God, what He's done, how He's comforted me, how He's guided me, and how He's given me uh, great hope for the future. I just think uh, that's why I'm a Christian. Wow. That's really neat. I love that. So these young kids that think they know it all and they're, they're going to get you, you know, if that's what they want to do. Yes. I think you told me that you've never had a single one of them come after you about that. No. In fact, uh, I've taught, I teach typically two different classes with about 40 in a class. Typically, I'll have 15 to 20, half of the class, standing in line to talk to me after the talk's over. Some believe or some not. That's the world we live in right now. And I think that there are more people right now who are wanting to have conversations about heaven, about the end of life, than ever before. And the Bible tells us we need to be prepared for those, don't we? Absolutely. So um, can you just thank these guys for joining me and being a part of that? Appreciate that so much.